Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each episode, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Rumi Ahmad about his great new book, Narratives of Islamic Legal Theory, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. How should one understand Islamic law outside of its application? And what happens when we think about religious jurisprudence theoretically? For medieval Muslim scholars, this was the field where one could enumerate the meaning and purpose of Islamic law. But to the uninitiated, these justifications for legal thinking are submerged in rote repetition of technical language and discourses. Luckily for us, Rumi Ahmed dives into the depths of various legal theory manuals to draw narrative understandings of Sharia to the surface. In this great new book, Ahmed examines two formative contemporaneous jurists from the Hanafi School of Law, to determine the relationship between law and ethics through legal discourses. He focuses on the nature and meaning of the Quran, the role of the Sunnah or the prophetic example, and the use of considered opinion in structuring legal boundaries. Ultimately, he views their positions not merely as academic debates over the minutia of religious opinions and injunctions, but as ritual observance, which formulates a world as if it were ideal. In our conversation, we discuss abrogation, punishment, salvation, Abraham's sacrifice, Hadith transmission, Piercean notions of abduction, religious law, stoning, adultery, the role of scholars, and contemporary calls for reform. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Rumi Ahmad about this great new book, Narratives of Islamic Legal Theory, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. How are you doing, Rumi? Doing great, Christian. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Great, great book. Uh, you, you make a somewhat daunting and perhaps boring topic. <laughs> very interesting, very engaging. And uh, I think you're, you're doing really interesting things with the, the way you're kind of examining these, these texts um, and something hopefully that a lot of other people can apply to their work. Thanks. Kind of the idea, I saw something, you know, people generally are kind of intimidated by legal theory, and I was hoping to kind of reduce that intimidation factor. Yeah, you even crack some jokes in there, which is uh, not, not <laughs> always happening in academic books. So thank, thank you for, for keeping yeah. it entertaining. Um, before we get into the the content, uh, perhaps you could kind of give us a little bit about your background, how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps kind of influential mentors or scholars that you have been uh, you know formative in in your work and what you do. Yeah, yeah. sure, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, when I was younger, I was always kind of interested in religion, um, probably as an identity thing. I, you know, I was I was raised in this outside of D.C. in a kind of rural-ish area, and I was one of the only Muslims in my school, and uh, for some time I was the only Muslim, and so um, 
being at the mosque and being around people who shared similar values, similar ideas, it was like a, it was a big deal. And uh, pretty early on, my older brother got me involved in uh, in Muslim youth of North America, and I started uh, getting really active in Islamic activism. And uh, you know, the the war on Bosnia happened when I was when I, in Bosnia happened when I was very young, and uh, the war in Kashmir, obviously, and I started getting interested in in international affairs and what Muslims were doing all over the world. And uh, as a self righteous um, pious young Muslim boy, um, the one thing that really disturbed me was whenever um, people would try to denigrate Islam. And the, the thing that really got me was when um, so-called Muslims in the academy would denigrate Islam and they would uh, question the Hadith and the Quran. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll show them a thing or two. And so, you know, I started studying Islam pretty, uh, pretty heavily and I uh, went to traditional uh, schools of learning, um, started memorizing the Quran, and uh, I really wanted to study in depth so that I could refute some of the the claims that were being made uh, about Islam, and also to to try and put something forward, try and show everyone how great uh, the Islamic tradition was, and and it is great. Um, but when I um, started studying, I, I quickly realized that things were a lot more complicated than I had thought they were. And, uh, you know, the Islamic tradition was far more vast than I initially imagined. And I, I noticed that there were a lot more voices than I had, I had heard, um, that a lot of the assumptions that we hold today weren't hold, held in the past. Um, and there really wasn't much I, I knew to do with that, except that I started talking to uh, a few professors and strangely enough, um, I got led to, uh, by a series of coincidences, this professor at the University of Virginia, Peter Oakes. And I talked to him about some of my ideas, and he said, you know what, you, you, you have something. I mean, something, you have some idea of, of that, that can be cultivated and grown. Now, I don't know what he saw in me, but he saw something, and he encouraged me to apply to the University of Virginia. And so I was like, sure, why not? Um, it can't hurt to apply. So I applied and I got in and I got a scholarship and I was blown away that someone was going to pay me to go to school. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, not really knowing what a PhD was. Um, and I started studying. I started, uh, going to, to classes. I took classes with, uh, Professor Abdulaziz Sachedina. And one thing that he really encouraged me to do, Professor Sachedina did was, to leave all my biases behind and just try to read the text and see what it's saying to me. Try to take any agenda or um, preconception that I had out and just read the text and then tell him what do the text say. And so he sat me down for many hours and we would just go through it and he would try and point out some of the anachronisms that I had that I was bringing to the text. And he was trying to highlight the uh, multiple layers that the text could have. And at the same time, Peter Oakes, um, who is not an Islamicist, but is a philosopher of Judaism, he would point me to um, texts on hermeneutics and tell me how I could use hermeneutical theories to bring even more meanings out of the text and more possibilities and, uh, and to recognize where I was coming into the text and where I, I was coming out and to recognize that there is always a back and forth 
between the reader and the text itself that the text is the text doesn't really say anything beyond what I bring to it. Um, uh, yet the text has something to say on its own, and there's this interplay. And I, I got to really enjoy reading primary text, and there was a, there was a joy to it. And one thing I think that I got from that was that the people who are writing, they're writing for some reason. They're writing out of some, call it joy, call it duty. Um, they're, tr- they're not just writing for themselves or for historical posterity. And so it got me thinking, well, why are these people writing this stuff? Um, what do they hope to gain out of it? And what, what do they want from me? And I started noticing that texts that I thought were very dry were actually really interesting. And I started noticing when authors were using sarcasm and when they were joking and when they, when they were really deeply serious and the layers upon layers of, of text just kind of keep me going up till today. That's great. Um, can you give us uh, a little background in how this particular project developed? What kind of sparked the interest in this, uh, these, these texts you're using and perhaps your, your approach? Yeah, sure. Um, legal theory was kind of the, the crown jewel in, uh, in classes that I had taken in, in Damascus and uh, I went through a course of study uh, based on the Deoband model. Uh, and it, it was seen as like this, this tradition. And so I was always kind of drawn to it just because it was seen as such a, such a great thing. Uh, when this particular project um, started off, uh, the details of it started off actually when you and I were in Yemen uh, what was this? Seven years ago? Oh my God! <laughs> it was six, seven years ago. Um, you and I were in Yemen together, and uh, I stumbled into a bookstore and started. I saw this big legal theory section, and so I started reading legal theory books. And what I noticed was there was something very interesting going on. The, these seemingly dry, unattainable texts we're actually making an argument um, and I wasn't sure what it was. And so I started studying legal theory to try and see what, what is really going on in these texts. And at the same time, uh, I was, I guess, wondering about the purpose of Islamic law. Um, Islamic law in modern times, the way that we, we talk about it, we tend to think of law as like a, reified system, something that gets applied on the state level. And uh, when a law is broken, there's a punishment, uh, a physical, some kind of a a penalty that you pay in the real world. Um, And laws don't change except through court systems and uh, through formal appeals. And this is not what was going on in the pre-modern period in the legal theory text that I was reading. They had a very different conception of law. It wasn't so much about um, social order. Um, when, when you read the biographical texts, these uh, jurists didn't have any hard power. They might have said that they had a lot of hard power, but they, they couldn't actually affect change. Um, they didn't consider law to be something on the state level. It was something that uh, applied to several parts of life, uh, personal as well as uh, social. And like, you know, a a law for ablution, for instance, if you break that law, 
nothing's going to happen to you. You're not going to get punished or, or put in jail, especially if, if no one else really knows. And if you decide to come up with a different law, that's okay. People might disagree with it, but it's not like you're committing treason. So Islamic law operated in some kind of a different sphere um, that I, I was trying to figure out what, you know, what is going on. And what I realized and what I hope to, to bring out in the book was that actually Islamic law is, is, operates within a religious framework. And the most important thing is not whether the law is applied in your daily life but how the law works within your religious imagination. So it's not the case that um, law is supposed to be ordered to make a good society, but that law is supposed to get you to salvation. Law is supposed to get you to heaven. And so it's a, it's a tool that takes you from pure potential to felicity. Now, in order for, for the, to do that, you have to come up with some worldview in which law plays a key part to get you from where you are to where you need to be. And that world doesn't operate on the same rules that regulate government or, um, or lived society. But it exists inside you, largely inside your imagination. So... For instance, if you um, like, for instance, if you want to talk about uh, the Islamic law of cutting off the hands of the thief, if you believe that the hands of the thief should be cut off, it doesn't matter whether you actually cut off anyone's hand. But what matters is whether you believe that you should cut off people's hands when they when they steal something. That's the difference between salvation and damnation for you, whether you believe that God's law should be applied. And it's that should that's interesting for me. What should Islamic law look like, regardless of whether it's applied or not, regardless of how it looked in the past or what makes logical sense? What should it look like in order for us to gain salvation? And that's actually what I found uh, happening in legal theory texts, that what they were doing was... They were making these grand arguments about what law should look like. So the, the reason why that's not apparent in legal theory texts is because this works within a religious framework. Like you don't have people in legal theory work saying, you know what Islamic law should look like? It should look like this. Um, instead, you have these really dense texts that talk about things like uh, the nature of metaphor and um, general and specific commands. Like if there's a command in the Quran, how do you know whether it's meant for everyone for all times or whether it's meant for one specific person or one specific time? And then these legal theory manuals, they go through all these details and arguments about small, seemingly um, very small minutiae of Islamic law. But what they're really doing when you put all of this together is that they're constructing a world in which Islamic law should work to get you to salvation. It's just really difficult to, to get to that. And the reason it's difficult is because it's religious. Religious rhetoric has to operate in this strange paradox where it has to appear like 
your religious rhetoric is really old and it's rooted in this ancient tradition and it doesn't change. And at the same time, your religious rhetoric has to be dynamic and it has to change according, uh, or it has to adapt to uh, address every single new issue that comes up. So on the one hand, it has to be really old and unchanging. On the other hand, it needs to be dynamic and applicable to all, all parts of life that maybe were never considered in the past. So in order to come up with a worldview, whether it's new, whether it's old, you have to present it as if it's old, as if, you know, this is the most natural thing in the world. And through that old rhetoric, you have to be dynamic and change things through the, through the rhetoric of, of ancientness. Um, and this is just the way that, that religious change, religious ideas seem to work, um, you know, on, uh, at a kind of simplified level. Um, Basim Zaman, he writes, he, he writes about um, how Islamic law changed in South Asia after colonialism. And, you know, things were so different. Uh, with the colonial enterprise. And a lot of people said, you know what, Islamic law has to change and we have to modernize it. And those people who did that, who said, yeah, we need to, we need to rethink Islamic law. They lost credibility amongst the people. They're like, well, that's not religion. Religion is old. Religion is, uh, came down with the prophet and we've been practicing religion since then the same way. At the, meanwhile, there was a group of scholars who just changed a bunch of stuff. Like, they saw that the laws weren't working, and they just said, okay, well, here are the new laws. Except that when they changed the law, they said, yeah, this is how it's always been. And because they, they changed the law while saying, this is how it's always been, they maintained credibility amongst the, uh, amongst the Muslim community. And that's the way that these legal theory texts are written. They're written in a way to present themselves as unchanging as uh, authoritative uh, and applicable forever. Whereas the arguments that they're making about the way that law should work in an ideal sense are widely varied and creative and different, and they reflect different religious imaginations of how Islamic law should work to get you to salvation. And so really, through the language of legal theory, you can make an innumerable number of arguments about how Islamic law should work. And it's really only limited by your imagination. Yeah, I think you're really successful uh, in demonstrating kind of notions of tradition with a capital T and kind of the the back and forth uh, within certain boundaries uh, of a given tradition. And I think anybody studying any religious uh, tradition will, if, if they're interested in that kind of back and forth, uh, will will benefit from, from reading this. And you do this in the kind of context of what you're calling justification, right? That these texts are justifying the, the meaning and the purpose of Islamic law. Um, one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask you about, um, you, you, you frame in the early part of the book, uh, that you're looking at these texts in uh, through a Piercean notion of what what you call abduction, right? Um, right? I'm wondering if you can you can talk about what exactly does this mean, and then how how does this help us understand Islamic legal theory? Sure. Uh, so this this notion of of old and dynamic comes uh, you know static and dynamic tension comes into play here. Uh, 
because uh, you know what legal theories claim to be doing was one of two things. They're either claiming to um, to use deductive logic, where you take a source that's unimpeachable and you um, take a premise and you derive a conclusion from that. So it's very logical. Um, so you start from some larger principle and then you derive an injunction. So it's teaching you, legal theory manuals are teaching you how to derive new injunctions that deal with new situations. Or the other um, thing that some legal theory manuals claim to do is they claim to use induction. So they say, here's a law that is on the books. How do we induce a principle and that we can then use to derive new laws? Legal theory manuals don't do either of those two things. Um, They claim to, but they don't. What they really do is they take principles that are enshrined in their traditions and they take injunctions that are enshrined in their traditions as starting points. So it's not that they're deriving injunctions so or deducing injunctions or inducing principles. They already have their principles and their injunctions set. They're not going to change. But what they do is they do something called abduction. They abduce or make a hypothesis about what you're supposed to do with those principles and injunctions. How are those principles and injunctions supposed to be applied or how should they work in an ideal world? Um, So it's neither induction nor is it deduction. So, for instance, the the main sources of Islamic law are always going to to be the two main sources, the Quran and the practice of Muhammad, the Sunnah. Those are never, ever going to change. Different legal schools might have different ideas about how the the Quran works or how the Sunnah works. How do you access the Sunnah? For the most part, those don't change either within the legal school. Um, Legal schools have certain injunctions that are central to their legal school. And for the most part, those injunctions don't change. How do you wash before prayer? Um, how do you hold your hands while you pray? What is the punishment for uh, failing to pay your zakat tax on time? These things are generally fixed. And if you look at um, jurisprudence manuals throughout the centuries, there's not a lot of change. There is change, and it's very interesting when there when that change occurs. But for the most part, say... of things are pretty much static. So the principles don't change. The injunctions don't change. But what you do with that changes significantly. So, for instance, um, the the law of of fornication, for instance, uh, or the law of adultery, a zina, the Quran says that the punishment for zina, if four people witness the act of adultery, the punishment is to be stoned to death. The hadith state that the punishment is for, uh, I'm sorry, the Quran states, I'm sorry, the Quran states the person is supposed to be flogged. Uh, So the person is supposed to be lashed 100 times. The hadith, however, states that the, uh, the person is supposed to be stoned to death. And there are several hadith that make it sound like Muhammad was uncomfortable with either stoning or lashing and made excuses for, um, for people who committed adultery. Now, the fact is, despite the fact that the Quran says lashing, some hadith say stoning, and the general ethos of the prophetic model was to uh, be wary of any 
kind of corporal punishment, every legal manual will say the punishment for adultery is stoning. So that's fixed. It's not going to change in pre-modern legal theories. But what I wanted to show in this book was that the principles and injunctions that appeared fixed do not limit how the law is applied. The only thing that limits how the law is applied is imagination. So let's say, for instance, um, that, uh, that one imagines Islamic law to, uh, to work in an imitative fashion. So what is the purpose of Islamic law? How do I imagine how Islamic law is supposed to work? Well, one thing is to say um, Muhammad was a prophet inspired by God. Therefore, whatever he did should be imitated by all Muslims in all times and all places. And that will get you to salvation. So the model that he created in Medina should be replicated and in Cairo and in Baghdad and in uh, New York or wherever. If you want to get to salvation, you should imitate the prophet as much as humanly possible. But another model that you can imagine is the prophet was sent by God as, a, as an example for all of mankind. Therefore, humans should try to emulate the prophetic model wherever they are. And that might look different in different places. There's a difference between imitation and emulation. Are you supposed to recreate the prophetic uh, actions or are you supposed to base your actions on the prophetic paradigm? That determines then how you apply that particular injunction. So I'll give you an example. There's a, like a, no, no legal theory work, by the way, will say, yeah, you're supposed to emulate him or you're supposed to imitate him. Instead, they make very subtle arguments about technical terms that then determine how you imagine the law to work. So, for instance, there's a there's a part of my book when I talk about the Quran um, and there's this issue of abrogation that some verses in the Quran abrogate others. There are certain verses of the Quran that talk about, um, for instance, making a bequest to people when you die. So you should write out whom you to whom are you giving all of your money to. But there's another verse in the Quran that talk that divides up. The, uh, your assets very particularly after you die. So which one is it? Are you supposed to make bequests or are you supposed to divide up your money you know, based on this particular model? Well, most scholars will say you have, to make, uh, you have to follow the particular model and divide up your assets according to the percentages mentioned in the verse that talks about percentages. But then this brings into question God and God's wisdom. So if one verse of the Quran can abrogate another verse of the Quran, does that mean that God changed his mind? And does that mean that following the original verse of the Quran would make you a bad person? Like, how can you be bad if you're following a verse of the Quran that comes up earlier? So can God command things that are bad and then change his mind and then command something that's good? So when legal theorists talk about this... Uh, we'll talk about the issue of abrogation, they'll bring up some of these ideas very quickly. And the example that most legal theorists give to talk about how God might be seen as either changing his mind or not is uh, the story of Abraham sacrificing his son. So in the Quran, there's a story, uh, it's a slight variation of the biblical story, where Abraham has a dream. And in the dream, 
he's told to sacrifice his son. The son is unnamed. So he goes to his son and he says, uh, you know, I had this dream. And the son says, well, do as God commanded you. And so he says, okay. He starts going up to the mountain to sacrifice his son. And just before um, he's about to kill his son, God sends down a ram uh, that he's supposed to sacrifice in, in the son's stead. Now, what happened? In the story, God commanded Abraham to do something through a dream. And then Abraham set out to do that thing. And then God said, no, don't do the command that I told you to do. Instead, do this other command. So the command to, ab- to uh, sacrifice the ram abrogated the command to sacrifice the son. But it brings up all these questions about whether God can command something evil. Was it the case that, com- that killing the son would have been a good thing if, he had go- if God hadn't abrogated the command? And if, if it was a bad thing, how could God command it? If it was a good thing, why did God change his mind? So now killing the son, a son would be bad, and killing a ram is good, or killing a lamb or, or some other kind of sacrifice is a good thing. How does all of this work? Does God's command have a certain temporality? Like, did his command last until a certain point, and then it expired, and so he sent down another command? So they talk, they talk about all these things. And um, the two scholars that I look at in particular— uh, they both looked at this uh, uh, at this uh, situation. I, I want to digress just a bit to talk about the two scholars. Um, to show how the religious imagination works, I particularly chose two scholars who lived in the same century, around the same area, who had similar teachers and uh, were both part of the same legal school. They both agreed on the same principles and the same injunctions. And so you would think that their legal theory manuals would look exactly the same. And in fact, they're ordered in almost the same way. And if you took a quick read of them, they would look exactly the same. But when you look closely, you see that what they're actually doing is making hugely different arguments about the way that Islamic law is supposed to work in an ideal world to get you to salvation. So one of the scholars, the Busi, he looked at this, uh, this story and he said, okay, well, what was God doing here? So what, what he was doing was he was trying to bring out, the, um, bring out his purpose, God's wisdom. Um, and the purpose that, uh, of, of this test was to get Abraham closer to God. So the actual details of the command are not important. What is important was getting Abraham closer to God. And as soon as he tried to get closer to God, the command, the command was fulfilled. So you don't actually have to go through with sacrificing the son. You could just, as soon as he tried, that's it. He got closer to God, end of story. Sarachsi looked at the same story and he said, no, it's, it's, not, it's not purpose. And he didn't say, no, no, it's not purpose. But instead he used a different word. And he said, well, what it is, is it's really God had an objective. And the objective was to see whether Abraham wanted to fulfill the command. If he wanted to fulfill the command, then, uh, then he would have passed the test. And God had to stop him. So now we have two models of what was happening. In one, God had a purpose, and the purpose was to bring Abraham closer to God. doesn't matter whether he did it or not. As long as he got closer to God, you're good to go. In the other one, he had 
to see he wanted to see if Abraham wanted to do the command. Now, what is the how does all of this relate to stoning adulterers? Well, Debussy said, okay, so if the purpose of Islamic law is to get someone closer to God, then the punishment for adultery is still stoning, but the judge should think about whether or not uh, stoning the adulterers will fulfill the purpose of bringing people closer to God. If it serves any other purpose than getting people closer to God, then the judge shouldn't do it because it doesn't fulfill the purpose of the law. Um, the judge should come up with some other kind of idea, and it's, it doesn't make the judge sinful. It just makes the judge, um, you know, it actually brings the judge closer to God by thinking about whether it's fulfilling the purpose. And if some other purpose might get uh, people closer to God, then they should do that. Sarachsi, on the other hand, since he believed that the point of the, the, um, the test of Abraham was to see if he wanted to do it, a judge, in order to cut closer to God, should want to stone the adulterers. The judge should try to, as little as possible, to be swayed by emotion and should try and institute the punishment. And in fact, um, I have an extended quote in, in one of the footnotes. It's like, great, from Sarachsi's Jurisprudence, so a different book, um, where he writes about how the jurist should not let um, uh, passion sway him or, or feelings of, of guilt or sadness or remorse or uh, compassion sway the judge from wanting to fulfill the, uh, the command. If something happens... Like, the judge can't fulfill the command for some reason, that's okay. But the judge should want to in order to pass the test. And uh, the extended command is, uh, the extended uh, quote is, uh, it's like, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't try and make excuses for, for people who commit adultery. Like, if someone says, I was compelled, well, maybe that works for a woman, but not for a guy. Because, um, like, you know, a guy could always complain to someone higher and say, so-and-so is compelling me, please stop them. And, uh, you know, guys tend to be, uh, if, if a guy had sex, that means that at some point he, he really wanted it. Um, so he's, he comes up with these elaborate theories that justified the, the idea that the judge shouldn't feel, shouldn't be swayed because the point of, of the test of Abraham was to get clo- was to see if you would want to fulfill the law. Now that, uh, this thing about Abraham happens in maybe a paragraph or two. And the difference in the approach of the Busi and Sarachsi is with one word, purpose, as opposed to objective. But the way that they define that word changes vastly the way that Islamic law is applied. And so in one case, the judge takes circumstance into account and tries to um, and, and can think of ways to get the people to not to, uh, think of ways to not apply the law. And the other, in the other case, the judge has to apply, want to apply the law as much as possible unless there is some impediment that's keeping the judge from doing so. These are completely different visions of Islamic law, of how Islamic law is supposed to get you to salvation. And the society that would be built on these visions is completely different. Um, as you go through, I, I, uh, I divided the chapter uh, the chapters into the main uh, sources of Islamic law, the Quran, the Sunnah, um, prophetic practice, and opinion. And I tried to show how these two scholars use the exact same terms, the same discourse, 
that made it appear that these legal theory manuals are in a long tradition and they're not doing anything really all that special. They use them to make completely different arguments about the way that the law should be applied. They weren't upsetting principles or changing any injunctions, but they were changing the entire vision of Islam. And, uh, you know, particularly for um, reformists today and those who are thinking of how Islamic law is supposed to work in the modern world, I feel that this is uh, highly instructive. We find that um, today the same paradox exists in Muslim communities uh, based on several um, surveys that have been done. Muslims tend to believe at the same time, Muslims in Muslim countries tend to believe at the same time that Islamic law is ancient and should not change, and yet it is dynamic and it can uh, address every new circumstance. There is a, a language to Islamic reform, to Islamic legal theory, and, and to change in the Islamic world that struggles between reforming all the laws and maintaining credibility amongst those who follow Islam and want to live in dignity as dignified Muslims, believing that they're part of a long and ancient tradition and yet are fully citizens of the modern world where there's as little as possible cognitive dissonance between the modern values that we hold and the Islamic law that we see getting from our uh, modern uh, situation to salvation. That's great, Rumi. Thank you. In this first chapter, you you focus on the Quran as a source. Um, you you move on then to the Hadith and how this plays uh, structuring ideas about the Sunnah and how the Sunnah structures normative practice. Um, and one of the areas where this kind of push and pull between these two authors can be seen is in different different types of Hadith transmission. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the various types of transmission and how how these two authors? Uh, effectively demonstrated their position on Islamic law more generally through that idea? Yeah, certainly. So there, there are different – when using the, the hadith as a, uh, as a source of the sunnah, I mean the, the sunnah is – everyone would agree that prophetic practice is a source of law. The question is how do you know what that prophetic practice is? So most – all Muslim scholars would agree – that there is a such thing as heavily attested uh, statements of Muhammad, of things that he did, so heavily attested that it's almost impossible that they could be forged. So, you know, if one or two people said it, okay, fine. But when a whole bunch of people say it, and all these people are all over the Muslim empire saying this thing, chances are there's some truth to it. And uh, you can rely on it as, a, uh, as an effective means of accessing the sunnah. So there's this transmission of what people say Muhammad did probably has some veracity to it. But then how do you know whether or not lots of people said it? Like what is lots of people? Like is it three? Is it four? Is it 10? Is it 50? Um, and really at the point where it's 50, how do you, it, there's no way that it would be the exact same saying. So 50 people maybe have the spirit of something Muhammad said. Like, does that count as, uh, as prophetic practice? And so these are the things that, um, that Muslim scholars debated over, over uh, the centuries. And they would also debate, well, okay, 
whatever was said by a lot of people, um, that's not the, these reports aren't high in number. So there aren't a whole bunch of statements that a whole bunch of people said. Most statements are what are known as the khabar wahid, the uh, singular transmissions. Someone, you know, 150 years after Muhammad died, said that someone else said that someone else said that someone else said that someone else said that Muhammad said such and such and such. Now that's a lot of layers uh, where something could have gone wrong. The problem is, if you cut out the single transmissions, you lose a lot of uh, authority for Islamic law. Most of Islamic law is built upon single transmissions. And so if you accept a lot of single transmissions, then you can have a more authoritative base for Islamic law. And if you accept less single transmissions, then you can, uh, you, you can accept less. Obviously, you would have less of an authoritative basis uh, on which to formulate Islamic law. Now, at the point where my two authors are writing, Babusi and Sarakhsi, the school that they belong to, the Hanafi school, is set. They accept uh, multiple chain transmissions, mutawatir. They accept single transmissions. And much of their law is built upon single transmissions. So there's going to be no debate on whether or not you can accept single transmissions or whether there's a such thing as uh, well-attested transmissions. But you can play around a little bit with the, uh, with the definitions of these terms. So... Sarakhsi, without uh, name, putting a number on multiple chain transmission, seems to suggest that you can, uh, you know, somewhere around three to ten people, that counts. Whereas the Busi, with, again, without stating a number, is somewhat on the higher range. And you can start to see that the Busi is a little more dubious of transmissions than is Sarakhsi, even though he's using the same terms and he's accepting the same terms. Now, there's a really interesting turn where um, the Busi and Sarakhsi uh, start talking about what's, what differentiates a well-attested transmission from a singular transmission and what can you do with these things. So both of them agreed you can't be sure about single transmissions. Like if, if you only heard something from one chain, it might be completely wrong. Like it, it might be made up. So the Busi says, well, you can accept them and you can base your law on them, but always know that it could be wrong. So, you know, you, um, you, you, a, a different transmission could come that could knock everything you think on its feet. And, um, you know, you, you're never quite sure of the law that you derive. So he keeps all the injunctions that are based on single transmissions. He keeps the principle that you accept single transmission, but he adds a little bit of doubt into it. And he says, well, well, we never quite know. And so what that does is if Islamic law is built almost entirely on single transmissions, then you're not always sure about whether you're uh, applying the, the law correctly or not. Whereas Sarakhsi, he said, yeah, same thing. We, we don't know that the single transmissions are true. They don't, the, the phrase, they don't generate indubitable knowledge. You can't be sure that, that what's in them is right. But the fact is, and so he works the other way. He says, the fact is 
we get our knowledge through single transmissions. And this was the way that Muhammad worked. He sent out emissaries to different parts of the Muslim uh, community to go out and, and give the message of Islam. Those were single people. So on some level, you have to be able to trust single transmissions a little more. And you know how you can really tell if a single transmission is, is right is if it accords with the injunctions that you have on the books. It means that the scholars felt that certain injunctions were better than others. And you should follow those scholars because those scholars know what they're talking about. So now we start to see two different models of, of how humans should engage Islamic law. One is with the Busi's cases, you're a little dubious of it, but it's kind of a necessary thing in order for you to, uh, to get salvation and you try the best you can. In the other, in Sarakhsi's model, you have this hierarchy of scholars that people should go to in order to, um, to know which single transmissions are right and how they're supposed to derive their Islamic law. And the scholars will know. They'll be able to tell you whether a single transmission is right or not because they know the injunctions that have already been derived from them. And so they can tell you which uh, transmissions you should follow and which you can't. And when you see things like, uh, like that in single transmissions and the Sunnah and the Quran, you start to see patterns in the way that the Busi and Sarakhsi approach Islamic law. So, for instance, uh, the issue of taqlid, uh, which I address in the third chapter of, you know, what are people supposed to do in their daily lives? The Busi said, you can follow, you know, pretty much anyone, any scholar, and um, the scholar might be right, the scholar might be wrong. The point of Islamic law for you to gain salvation is not to, do, to necessarily do the right thing, but to try to do the right thing. And as long as you try, God will forgive you. Whereas Sarakhsi says, no, what, you know, you could get this very wrong. And laypersons, they don't know how, they don't know what the injunctions are. They don't know how to sift through the singular transmissions. They need to follow someone. They need to follow people uh, who are what he defines as the scholarly community. And very quickly, he says the scholarly community is the majority of scholars in, in any one uh, legal school. And so whereas in the Busi's conception, you can just follow you know, your local imam and you try to do the right thing. In Sarakhsi's conception, it's far more immediate. And you can't just follow anybody. You need to follow the majority. And if you deviate from the majority, even if you think you're doing the right thing, you could be making God angry because you're, you're doing something that's, that's potentially shady, but that's potentially wrong. And if you do something that's wrong, then God will be angry with you. So again, these are idealized conceptions of the way that Islamic law should work, regardless of the way that it does work. I mean, the fact is most Muslims didn't know very much about Islamic law at all. and They didn't uh, you know, go toward their scholars uh, and, and ask them every little question. But how should it work? for you to gain salvation. I call this uh, subjunctive realities. These are, these are, they're describing the world as if, as if the world worked according to, uh, according to the, uh, a particular logic. How would it, how would uh, our daily actions look? How would God want us to act? And that's the spirit in which they seem to be writing these texts. Yeah, that's great. Um, it, the book goes into great detail and we obviously don't have time to, to go through all the examples that you, you, you do in the book. Um, but one of the things I wanted to make sure to ask you is, uh, in a conclusion, 
you kind of reflect on this idea of this is just kind of uh, it not does not have real kind of lived effects. Um, then, then what exactly is the purpose of writing these types of texts? And you you basically come to the conclusion that legal theory uh, is it, it can be understood as ritual. Yeah. Could, could you kind of explain that? Sure. So, I mean, one thing we know is that uh, the scholars didn't have. Uh, a lot of hard power. Sometimes there would be a um, you would be a scholar would be part of the court, um, but even still, whenever a scholar got into a, a an argument or a disagreement with some local ruler or, or or anyone with any kind of power, the scholars always lost. Um, the stories are multiple throughout the biographical dictionaries of scholars who go to jail for. You know, seemingly minor offenses because they they got somebody angry. The scholars never had the final say on what's supposed to happen. I mean, Sarachsi, for instance, one of my scholars, um, he criticized his local leader. I mean, not even the uh, the sultan of the of the uh, the empire in which he belonged, but just a local khan, a local leader. He criticized the way that he contracted his marriage, um, and then he spent the next ten to twelve years in an underground dungeon. Because uh, the Khan didn't like the fact that he was questioning his uh, his marriage, the scholars had to have known they they knew that they didn't they weren't affecting actual change that no judge or or no uh, ruler was going to rule based on their legal theory book. So uh, the question I, I I came to was well why are they writing it in the first place? I mean, they're, yeah, okay, this is all very interesting. They, they have this religious imagination that they're, um, that they're putting across through this legal theory book um, to try to uh, describe how people should attain salvation. Well, who are they writing to? What do they hope to, to happen? Well, you know, maybe they're writing to their contemporaries. Maybe they're trying to uh, affect the way that other scholars think about Islamic law. But then what? Those scholars don't have the, the power to affect jurisprudence and to make the, the empire run on Islamic law, whatever that might mean. And those scholars often weren't judges, so they couldn't affect things in the real world. So what is going on? And what is going on is that Islamic law is Islamic. It's a religious practice. And so when they're writing these texts, they're reflecting their devotion to God they are themselves trying to get to heaven. They're trying to explain how salvation works. And when they're writing these texts, it's an act of ritual. So when you're doing a ritual, it doesn't matter that you're not, in, you're not affecting change in the real world. When a, when a Muslim goes into a mosque and starts praying, or a Jew goes into a synagogue, or a Christian goes into a church, whatever have you, when you begin a ritual... You are purposely circumscribing a, a, a space around yourself that doesn't exist outside of that ritual. You're, make, you're blocking off the world and you're creating a subjunctive world for yourself as if the ritual were a reflection of your daily life or the way that the world should work. So whether you're praying or you're giving a charity or you're making a pilgrimage to somewhere else, these are not things that... Uh, exist in the in your daily life you are creating a subjunctive universe for yourself as if this were um reality as if this reflected um god's desire for you and that's what i see going on in these texts is they're 
making ritual um, – they're, they're engaging in a ritual that reflects their devotion to God, uh, much the same way that, that people pray. And yes, they're doing other things with it. They're writing to other scholars. They're making a name for themselves um, by publishing books. They're gathering students. But at its heart, the reason why someone would write a book like this and seemingly hide a lot of their revolutionary ideas inside ancient language is because their main concern is with God and with the ritual of writing these legal theory texts. And I think that this ritual supersedes legal theory. I mean, it's just, it just happens to be so obvious in legal theory um, because it's so theoretical. Um, you can kind of look at jurisprudence and say, okay, well, they want people to do X, Y, or Z. But there's not a lot of commanding in legal theory texts. It's more about, it seems to be more about hermeneutics. And so it's just more obvious in the legal theory text, but works of jurisprudence, if they're not going to be applied on a state level, it's a subjunctive, it's a ritual that jurists are engaging in to reflect their devotion to God. And they are also con, uh, constructing an as-if universe, as-if Islamic law applied at, at all levels, and people would, um, would gain salvation through their, through their action. And that's still how Islamic law works today. Yes, we have uh, you know, state systems now, and we have um, nation-state conceptions of, of law. But at the everyday people engage with or engage in Islamic law uh, as a ritual means of communing with God. Um, and the different ways that people do that are only limited by the imagination that they bring to it. Um, there are lots of Muslims who don't practice at all. They don't practice Islamic law at all, but they think it's really, really important. And they say that you should um, practice Islamic law. And whether they do or they don't is of secondary concern. What matters for them is what they believe and what Islamic law means for them in their lives. And when we start thinking about law as, as a ritual, I think we start to get a much denser picture of, uh, of how people interact with religion and with law and religious law in particular in their everyday lives. And that there is a rhetoric, there's a way to talk about religion in a way that's different that we talk about state law, civil law, criminal law, uh, that has deeper stakes and many more ways to practice uh, this, this type of law than, than what we may be used to thinking of. Yeah, it's great. And it's a really an excellent book, Rumi. Uh, you, you've uh, spent a lot of time with us, so I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, but we would love to hear more about kind of what, what you're working on now, perhaps other projects that you have maybe that are coming out soon, or what, what can we expect from, from Rumi Ahmed in the future? Yeah, well, the next major work is like a, is an extension of, uh, of, of this in the realm of jurisprudence um, to describe how Islamic law changes and how it can change. Uh, particular injunctions while still maintain while working within the rhetoric of uh, of an Islamic law that doesn 't change and so what i 'm trying to do is to uh, give an overview of historically how did Islamic law work today how does Islamic law work uh, slightly differently in the mo- in modern conceptions 
and how does the logic of Islamic law and Islamic legal reform still work? So there are lots of things, there are lots of injunctions that have changed uh, in the last 100 years, in the last 50 years. Um, and there are lots of calls for changing Islamic laws. Some of those calls are very effective, and Islamic law changes as a result. Some of those calls are not so effective, um, and they get a very um, impassioned, vehement pushback from legal scholars, uh, Islamic legal scholars and traditional institutions of learning. And so my, my main question is, why is it that some calls get taken up and some calls get rejected? And uh, the, the answer is, is many-fold. But part of it is the way that the arguments are made. Um, there are lots of calls for um, changing Islamic law because Islamic law doesn't uh, – the inherited Islamic law works against modern conceptions of justice. And so Islamic law should then be changed in order to fit modern conceptions. Um, and le traditional legal scholars push back on that very hard and – their response is glib um, and it offhandedly dismisses real concerns. They say, you know, justice is not a methodology or morality is not a methodology. You need some methodology. And then, but then, you know, if you ask them, well, what methodology do they have? You often don't really get a response other than, well, it's in the, it's in the tradition. Um, so what my um, project is, is what if we took the criticism seriously and we said, okay, um, how would we, make a methodology for reforming Islamic laws uh, upon which there is some pushback um, from, from legal scholars? How do we make it so that these reforms appear more palatable methodologically? Uh, and what I'm trying to do is to outline a method of reform, a theology of reform that, um, that balances competing concerns that traditional legal scholars might have. And the fact is that, is that Islamic law changes and has changed dramatically to fit modern, or, you know, or to fit different conceptions of morality. Uh, slavery is no longer considered acceptable. Concubinage is uh, no longer an acceptable idea. Uh, whereas in the pre-modern past, it was perfectly acceptable. So some things can change uh, and can get adopted into uh, traditional legal uh, discourses. And I'm trying to describe how most any change, um, no longer cutting off the hands of the thief, not stoning adulterers, not prosecuting any um, uh, sexual crimes uh, whatsoever uh, or personal sexuality as a crime. How do moral values that people might hold get translated through a methodologically rigorous ethical discourse into, a, uh, into injunctions that can then be taken seriously and debated uh, inside traditional legal circles. That's great. Yeah, we look forward to that, Rumi. Thank you. Thank um, you. Yeah, and thanks again for, for making the time to, to chat with us about the book. Uh, again, it's a, really, it's a great book. I think people in various fields are going to benefit from it greatly, so thank you. Thanks very much. It's always great to talk to you, Christian. You've been listening to my conversation with Rumi Ahmed about his book, Narratives of Islamic Legal Theory which was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion.